0: Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 56, and i like to begin with a verse that Hey Jude gave me, Jude Hallbleib, Judy, Job 11.7 and 8 together, can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? And, Father, we thank you today that you will allow us to do your will by your power, and you will allow us to know things hidden from the eyes of so many millions today. We pray, Father, that you will be glorified, We need you to be glorified, for it is you who have made us and not we ourselves. We need you to be all-sufficient today, for we are sufficient for nothing, and all our sufficiency is of you. So we present ourselves to you for the purpose of enlightenment, and so, Father, in your light may we see the light that shines from the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, and may we and thousands more today see him in his universally saving and redemptive significance. We thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and we're emphasizing a certain clause in that passage. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same, so that through experiencing death, he would render combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate, and here's our clause, all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. First, consider that there may be an allusion here to Isaiah chapter 61 in verse 1 in which the one, the Messiah, anointed with the Spirit liberates those who are in prison. His proclamation of the liberation of those in prison. The word for liberate in Hebrews 2.15 is apalasso, and the verb means both to liberate and to release. The word for liberate, therefore, is very important in our study today. It's a versatile verb that can be used in descriptions of release or removal from confinement, from political oppression, from wickedness, as wisdom of Solomon 12.2 puts it, from the torturers, as Maccabees, the fourth Maccabees, 9.16 has it. In Luke 23.22, it carries the sense of release from captivity. So Apollosso in Acts 19.12 describes the departure of diseases from people. Who even touched Paul's handkerchief as it was being passed around? Second, for our consideration, the implication of this description of all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, notice that. All those who all their lives were subject to lifetime slavery. That means he's speaking of people who have lived their entire lives and who require liberation. And that's an important point. So he is alluding here to those who had died physically after lifelong enslavement to the fear of death. Remember, these people have lived all their lives in slavery to the fear of death and then died. Listen carefully to this. Follow this reasoning, and you will see Jesus today in a universally saving significance. And you will have the vision without which people are perishing today. And the perishing is denoted by fragmentation, violence, polarization, hatred, tribalism, and all kinds of things that are going on today, and all you got to do is flick on the news to see it. It's perishing. Now, if this is the case, that he's speaking here of people who have already lived their whole lifespans, then there is a correlation with two intersected passages. Two passages in 1 Peter and a correlation to those passages to Hebrews 2.15. The description of those who were liberated is all those, or as many as were held in slavery to the fear of death, all their lives. That's the phrase that's our title today. That can be taken, or should be taken, listen carefully, that should be interpreted as a description of people who had already lived their lives and died in this connection we should see and note that hebrews and first peter the reason why i believe that hebrews is rooted in christian tradition early christian tradition and the scriptures and not gnostic mysticism or Hellenistic speculation, is because there is a remarkable affinity between 1 Peter and Hebrews in the Scripture. Hebrews and 1 Peter have very much in common, so much that 1 Peter probably bears the closest resemblance to Hebrews of any other biblical book or document. With the help of Harold Atridge, one of the com- one of the commentaries i'm reading now in his commentary on hebrews i counted and that's just off the top of my head i counted 35 parallels between first peter and hebrews and i'll give nine examples to suffice right now at least to show the similarity of these documents one first peter and hebrews are both words of encouragement as noted in their respective epistolary conclusions. In the conclusion, 1 Peter 5.12 and Hebrews 13.22, the whole document is described as an encouragement of the readers, second of nine points of parallel. Hebrews 9.26, which I regard as a very important verse, says that Christ appeared at the juncture of the ages to put away sin. And 1 Peter 1.20 similarly says that Christ was made manifest at the end of the times for you. At the end of the times or the end of times is like in these last days, the phrase that opens Hebrews in which God has spoken with finality in a son in these last days. Hebrews 1.2. Third parallel. Jesus Christ is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13.20 and as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5.4 who is yet to appear in a universal appearing whom God raised from the dead according to 1 Peter 1.3 and Hebrews 13.20. The fourth parallel, Hebrews 1, one speaks of God speaking in the prophets, and 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 speaks of the spirit of Christ in the prophets of old. Fifth, a major motif in Hebrews is the, quote, once and for all, either denoted by the Greek word ephapax or hapax, once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 7.27, 9.7, 9.28, 9, and 10.12. And in 1 Peter 3.18, a verse central to that epistle, Peter proclaims, quote, Christ suffered for sins once for all. The righteous one for all the unrighteous. Sixth parallel. And again, I'm only doing 9 out of 35 that I counted recently. Maybe we'll hit the rest of those on another occasion. Sixth parallel. First Peter speaks of a salvation that had come to his readers, which was only predicted by the spirit of Christ in prophets of previous eras. A salvation, says Peter, that angels desired to look into first Peter 110 to twelve, Hebrews one one to four. this implies, of course, that the salvation that came to humanity is the envy of angels, as it were. This being such a great salvation, first Peter 110 to twelve, compared to Hebrews two three, such a great salvation, spoken of by the P. T. the pastor theologian in Hebrews two, 3. Seventh parallel. Like Hebrews, First Peter deals with the superiority of Christ over angels. First Peter three twenty-two, compared with Hebrews one four through six, and two five, as well as two sixteen. Eighth parallel: the reference to the redeeming blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, in First Peter one eighteen and nineteen is parallel with Hebrews 9.14, which says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God without blemish, purify your conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God? Without blemish he offered himself, implying that he is the Lamb of God. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, Hebrews 9.14 the ninth parallel in hebrews 118 to 19 the readers are said to be redeemed from a vain tradition while in hebrews 914 the blood of christ is said to have purified the readers from dead works which is another way of saying a vain kind of living these and many more parallels i think 26 more at least can be found in these two documents, including the fact that First Peter speaks explicitly of the priesthood and the priesthood of believers, while complementing that, Hebrews speaks of the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. These and many more, that'd be the tenth parallel, wouldn't it? These and many more parallels can be found in these two documents. But there may be another parallel that can be easily overlooked. And therefore, an insight, a remarkable insight, could be overlooked by letting this parallel slip by us. That's the parallel between Hebrews two fifteen and First Peter three nineteen and twenty, in connection with First Peter four six. We've spoken a few times about such a great salvation being diachronic in nature, D-I-A-C-R-C-H-R-O-N-I-C. Diachronic means covering throughout all time, throughout all of history, diachronic deliverance. And that means that this salvation encompasses not only the people of the present and the future, but also, and listen carefully, people who lived and died in the past. 1 Peter speaks of Jesus, quote, going by the Spirit, the same Spirit that made him alive, going by the Spirit to proclaim his victory to the spirits in prison, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Now, I'm going to give away the story a little bit here, at least have a few aisles of it. When it says that he went to visit the spirits in prison, immediately start thinking about Romans 11.32, where it says that God imprisoned all Jews and Gentiles over all the course of time. He imprisoned them all in disobedience, that he might have mercy... Upon all I'm going to show you today that the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and The impact of his death and resurrection and exaltation Broke barriers not only between Jews and Gentiles but between believers and unbelievers and the dead and the living That's the Jesus I see and that's the Jesus I worship And I wouldn't be itching to get back to church if it was to worship a partial Savior. Now, why waste your time? That he proclaimed the gospel, it says, by the Spirit to the, quote, disobedient spirits. That's not speaking of angels or Nephilim. That's speaking of people who had died, the souls of the dead. He preaches, he goes by the Holy Spirit in the power of the Spirit to proclaim his victory to the spirits in prison. And that means disobedient souls in prison. He proclaims the gospel. That's good news to them. And that's a dramatic way. Listen carefully now. Listen carefully. That is a dramatic way of proclaiming that they too are the objects of his universally saving significance. God has indeed imprisoned everyone in the prison of disobedience and unbelief. It means the same thing. So that he can have and will have mercy, and the mercy is saving mercy in Titus three five upon. All Romans eleven thirty to thirty-two, coupled with first Peter three eighteen to twenty, as well as Titus three five enters here, Ephesians two four, etc. First Peter three eighteen states that having died for all the unrighteous, in verse eighteen, as the righteous one, Jesus went in the same spirit who made him alive in resurrection, to the spirits in prison. Note again that God imprisoned, Romans eleven thirty to 32, all Jews and all Gentiles in disobedience in order to have mercy on them all. So it doesn't seem that obedience is the prerequisite to receive God's mercy. It seems that disobedience is. And the only way for the disobedient to be qualified for mercy is through the obedience of the one Jesus Christ, whose obedience led to the many, that is the all, being made righteous. How can the many not be made righteous if God has made Jesus to be our righteousness? In 1 Corinthians one thirty, compared with Romans 5.18 and 19. But then again, most of my audience knows those verses already and can memorize them. Now, or has memorized them. 1 Peter 4.6 plainly states, quote, The gospel was preached to those who have died. That's pretty clear to me. Could it be that the imprisoned spirits... Now, when I pray to God, I say, into your hands I entrust my spirit, because I'm a spirit. We are spirit, soul, and body, but we can be called spirit. The Father is called the Father of Spirits in Hebrews twelve, ten. So, the spirits in prison were people who had lived all their lives, listen carefully, without believing. Who lived all their lives in disobedience. And they're getting the gospel preached to them, and the gospel is the power of salvation. And the implication is that this gospel evokes faith in the dead. And why should that surprise us? We were all dead in trespasses, and God made us alive in Christ. He made us alive while we were dead. So, what does a dead man do to get justified? Now, could it be that the imprisoned spirits here are the people who had died and who were in prison awaiting the saving mercy of God, so to speak? The apostle Peter goes on to say that although these people had died physically because of the judgment that is common to all humanity. We die once, once to die, Hebrews 9:27. That's the judgment that is for all of humanity. I plan on dying unless the Lord returns to translate my physicality into a transconfigured humanity like his own, and I'm the generation that's part of that. I plan on dying. I plan on dying physically. And being face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, whom I have preached for nearly five decades. I'm looking forward to it. So the P- Peter goes on to say that although these people had died physically because of the judgment that's common to all humanity, we die once, as Hebrews 9.27 they are to live by the spirit that's the holy spirit in the same way that god allows jesus to live by the spirit because he died as the righteous one for all the unrighteous in 1st peter 3:18 remember 3:19 and 20 goes off from 3:18 which is a statement in the center of 1st peter it sounds just like Hebrews in its totality. In Christ, all will be made alive. And that includes those who have lived all their lives under the fear of death and without believing. All will be made alive in Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, And that includes all those who died having lived all their lives not believing in Christ, and therefore enslaved to the fear of death. In 1 Peter three eighteen to 20, therefore, let's block these two off and leave them for a moment, just to look at them. 1 Peter three eighteen to 20, and 1 Peter 4, 6, combine to form a powerful statement that the great salvation of which Jesus is the founder and champion, reaches the realm of the dead, the physically dead, and reaches the times of the past and even breaks the barriers of unbelief and disobedience of people in the past. I hope you're seeing this. Such a great salvation. Salvation should not be be neglected today. But you know what? It's being neglected all over the place. Nominal Christendom neglects this such great salvation all over the place while it talks about Jesus being a Savior, a Savior for some. And yet it accepts the demonic lie that he's the tormentor of others. Now, such a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, who is the Savior of all mankind in 2.11. Such a Savior should be praised and worshipped and will be universally by every tongue, whether the tongue is speaking from heaven, earth, or under the earth. Now this also serves to interpret what Paul meant when he said that every knee will genuflect every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and, listen carefully, under the earth. And that every tongue will worshipfully acknowledge, not forcibly, worshipfully and willfully, willingly acknowledge Yahweh to be Jesus, Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2:10 to 11 Romans 14:11 And you can confer with Isaiah 45:23 to see the scriptural source of both of those. And this is why John could say in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13, "And I heard all of creation that which is in heaven and on the earth and Under the earth, on the sea, and every being that is in them say, Blessed blessing and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the Lamb for the age that consists of endless ages. Amen. So, first Peter speaks first of Jesus, the righteous one. That sounds familiar. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Acts 22.14, the Righteous One, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2.1. The Righteous One, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation, the expiation for the sins not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world, including the underworld. The Righteous One died for the unrighteous ones that seems to be all who have sinned that's all of humanity with the exception of the man Christ Jesus who was sinless then it speaks of his being made alive this righteous one this Jesus whom we see with the eyes of the heart it speaks of him being made alive by the spirit sounds like Romans eight eleven after being put to death by the flesh, that is, by people controlled by the Adamic ontology. And then it speaks of his trip to the place of the dead to announce the gospel to disobedient souls. Preaching for a prime example, and of all the generations Peter could pick as That generation, one of the typical generations to whom Jesus preached, it's the generation that lived in the days of Noah, where every thought and every imagination that people thought was only evil all the time. That doesn't mean that they were all politicians. But that's the testimony of Scripture. Now, he was made alive by the Spirit and went to preach to the souls of the dead, to those who were disobedient. Apythéo, same word used in Romans 11:30 30 and 31. He imprisoned the disobedient. Why? To have mercy on them. Saving mercy. While the patience of God, it says, the patience of God in 2 Peter 3.15 is equated with salvation. While the patience of God waited for 120 years, the population of the earth was disobedient and died in the deluge. But that patience of God isn't damnation for them. It is salvation for them. For them while the patience of God waited in the days of Noah who was preparing an ark whereby a few that is only eight souls were saved or brought safely through the deluge in those days on that ark which is the same the word ark also means coffin on that boat was the seed Christ who would redeem all the disobedient in those days of Noah. Though only eight souls were saved, and a lot of preachers will say, see, only eight souls were saved, the rest are damned, and what to hell? No. Only eight souls or lives were saved through the deluge in those days. But though only eight souls were saved, that is, delivered through the deluge, all would be saved through the seed that was on board that ark. Christ is that seed. Peter uses the generation that experienced the flood as an example of those whom Jesus evangelized and brought good news to because if they were to be given life in the Spirit, and they are, then how much more would other generations be given life in the Spirit? So similar to 1 Peter, Hebrews first speaks of Jesus experiencing death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. 1 Peter 3.18. In order to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10, compared to Hebrews, again, or rather 1 Peter 3.18, he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God, which is to bring the many sons and daughters to glory. So then Hebrews speaks of releasing all those who had for their entire lifespan been subjected to the fear of death and then died. Listen carefully. In both of these documents, 1 Peter and Hebrews, we have the clear indication of a salvation or a redemption not only of people after the Christ event, but also of people before The Christ event, including those who had been disobedient all of their lifetime on the earth and who had died, but who are destined to be made alive by the spirit of God as Christ was. So it seems like Christ is going to be all in all and God will be all in all because Christ is all in all. It seems that Christ will comprise all. And all will be comprised of him. The prolepsis of that truth is now called the church, Colossians 3.11. Now, both First Peter and Hebrews tells the story of such a great salvation. Hebrews 2.3, 1 Peter to 12 To include the life-giving justification, as Paul calls it in Romans 5.18, of all those who died, even those who famously refused to obey the gospel preached through Noah during arguably one of the most evil eras of human history. We're getting close in our time. But we're speaking of the 120 years in which Noah was preparing the ark when the thoughts and the intentions of people on the earth were exclusively and entirely evil. Genesis 6-3, Genesis 6-5. But such is the just and mysterious law of the cross by which God has chosen to convert the evils of the human race into a supreme good. Did you get that? The just and mysterious law of the cross. By it that's the universal impact of the cross of Christ, otherwise known as the just and mysterious law of the cross, by it the evils of the human race and the evil ones of the human race are not done away with by God's power, but they are converted into a supreme good by God's omnipotent love. First Peter 4, 6 then adds another piece to the puzzle which come. When it's completed, that puzzle, it's got thousands of pieces to it. And it's been, I've spent all my life trying to piece them all together. Because when it's completed, it's a portrait of Jesus in his universal and redemptive glory. For this is why the good news was proclaimed even to those who are dead, Peter said. It doesn't say they he went to hell to tell the people in hell they're surely damned. That's not why he went to hell that was conveyed there. This is why the good news was proclaimed even to those who are dead, says Peter, so that having received the judgment common to all humanity, which means they simply physically died, having received that judgment, they might live by the Spirit as God intended for all of humanity, and as Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, according to 1 Peter 3.18, to become a life-giving Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And then you can compare 1 Corinthians 15.22 with Ephesians two five. All of those who are physically dead are to be among those who are made alive in Christ. His life is systemic in all the human race, and that's all of humanity, all of whom were imprisoned in disobedience so that God could have mercy on them all, on us all. That means so that God could save us all according to his mercy. Romans eleven thirty to 32 Titus 3, 5. And not by a divine response to human works done in righteousness, nor by a divine response to human belief or faith, or righteous works which we do in righteousness. Because of Jesus, the dead receive life-giving justification through his faithfulness. Those who have done good will be raised to eternal life, Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, but there's none that do good. And those who have done evil will be be raised to a judgment, yes, a judgment judgment, by which they are justified and given eternal life. Thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's right, Jesus Christ, whom Hollywood loves to blaspheme. Jesus Christ, your Lord, my Lord the Lord of all humanity, whom every tongue is destined to praise, in Romans 14, 11. No matter what their moral or spiritual status was in this life, they are in the hands of God, having died. Now, what Wisdom of Solomon, a book that is contemporaneous with, these, with Hebrews, but not inspired like Hebrews, Nevertheless, helpful to our understanding. What Wisdom of Solomon says about righteous souls being, quote, in the hand of God where no torment will ever touch them. That's Wisdom of Solomon 3 1. What that teacher says is what I would say, and I think what Paul would say, is in fact true for all departed souls because the one righteous act of one righteous man, Christ Jesus, resulted in justification for all humanity who had sinned in Adam. Romans 5.12, Romans 5.18. What wisdom of Solomon 3.2 says about righteous souls, that they are far from torment, having died, is in fact true of all the departed. In the eyes of the unenlightened, says Wisdom of Solomon, or the teacher who wrote Wisdom of Solomon, he said, in the eyes of the unenlightened, they only seem to have died, and their departure was thought of as a disaster. But what the teacher of Wisdom of Solomon says about so-called righteous souls who have departed Is in fact true of all souls of the departed. It is not their annihilation or their torment in hell, rather, they are at peace. En erene. So, RIP, rest in peace, is a proper inscription on any gravestone because the Prince of Peace has made peace and is our peace and because God made peace for all through the blood of Christ's cross. In Colossians 1.20. Now we're approaching the final gears of our message today. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other and they didn't find each other on e-harmony. They did express an eschatological harmony in Christ. Righteousness and peace, righteousness and peace, have kissed each other, Psalm 85, 10, in Jesus, who is said to be our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and our peace in Ephesians 2, 14. He is our righteousness and fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah 23, 6. He shall be called Yahweh to Sidneku to which means righteousness the lord our righteousness and who is our peace ephesians 2:14 as the one whose death broke down listen carefully his death broke down not only the barrier between jews and gentiles but the barriers between the living and the dead the believing and the unbelieving because of Jesus righteousness is God's gift to all and righteousness results in peace and in life for all. Jesus himself is this peace. Again it's Ephesians 2:14 and he is the resurrection and the life in John 11:24 to 27. His flesh he said he said my flesh is bread for the life of the whole world in John 6.51. That's the eternal life of the whole world of humankind, diachronically speaking. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation, expiation of the sins of the whole world. Not just your sins, preacher. Not just your sins, professing Christian. The sins of the whole world the sins of the Muslim world, the sins of the Hindu world, the sins of the Buddhist world, the sins of the atheistic world. Even the sins of the followers of a stupid ideology today that's ruining and wrecking and destroying everywhere. And they don't even know what they're doing or who they're following. Their blind leaders are leading blind people into a ditch of national destruction that national destruction will be stopped by a remnant of believers with this vision of a universally saving Savior. And not by a politician or political party. So comparing the teacher who wrote, that's First John 2, 1 to 2, by the way, the sins of the whole world. Comparing the teacher who wrote Wisdom of Solomon with Paul, is reminiscent of the dialectic of contradictories that we discovered in Romans, where Paul argued for the justification of all and for the gospel about God's Son, which is the power of salvation, against the teacher whose idolatrous pseudo-gospel. And a lot of people want to go back to church so that they can listen to a preacher rant on about a pseudo-idolatrous gospel about a partial savior who was partially successful in his mission to save the world. You want to go back to church? You're better off not going back to that church. Now, I'm calm. Some of my listeners may not be, but I'm very calm. The teacher's idolatrous pseudo gospel proclaims. See if this sounds familiar: the justification only of those who obeyed the law of Moses. But today, it's only those who obeyed through faith. That Jesus traveled in the spirit to the underworld. Now, here's the, this may be the most important part of the verse because I'm giving or, or the message today because I'm giving some documentation from Wolfhart Pannenberg and Jürgen Moltmann, both notable theologians of the 20th century and the 21st. That Jesus traveled in the spirit to the underworld is often referred to as his, quote, descent into hell. But what is this really speaking about? In his doctrinal study called Jesus, God and Man, which was a very intricate study, and I was tempted to throw that book against the wall or burn it many times because I couldn't break through on what he was saying, but I finally did. His book called Jesus, God and Man, Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote this, the symbolic language of Jesus' descent into hell expresses the extent to which those men who live before Jesus' activity and those who did not know him have a share in the salvation that has appeared in him. Jürgen Moltmann agrees. On pages 189 to 190 of his fabulous book called The Way of Jesus Christ, Moltmann wrote, Whatever we may think, about the particular concepts underlying these images. Speaking of 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, 1 Peter 4, 6. The important point is that Christ is ascribed saving potentiality for the dead. No limits are set to the power of his suffering, which are redemptive through their vicarious potency because God was in him. Consequently, the dead are included. Now, Herr Moltmann didn't yell like that, but he wrote that. So I'm saying far from 1 Peter 4, 6 being Jesus' confirmation of the damnation of souls who had died. And that's how I used to preach it many, many, well, let's say decades ago. First Peter 4, 6 is not Jesus' confirmation of the damnation of the souls who had died without believing. It is rather the expression of his universally saving significance, Moreover, the gospel is the power of salvation, not only to those who believe or exclusively to those who believe, but to all, whether they believe or not, because of the faithfulness of the righteous one. It's not the power of God. Jesus preached the gospel to these people, and the gospel is the power of salvation, not the power of damnation. You want to go back to church to hear 1 Peter 4, 6, a confirmation of the damnation of the dead? So that you can spend the rest of your life wondering if dear old uncle so-and-so who liked his liquor is in hell or not? Pannenberg was right to say that to interpret 1 Peter 4, 6 to mean that Jesus proclaimed judgment as the victor to the conviction of the damned of their guilt, that's bad. Bad exegesis, he said, and he's right. To preach that, again, as if he's proclaiming judgment as the victor, to convict the damned of their guilt and to assure them that they're damned and going to hell in the lake of fire, to teach that is bad exegesis. False teaching. The language that is, impl- and there's preachers saying that the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and his universally saving impact of his death is heresy and false doctrine. They're the false doctrinal preachers. They're the false preachers. They have bad exegesis behind their pro- proclamations. I wouldn't go to that church even if that we could go tomorrow without any masks on. Now, the language that's employed by Peter is not only symbolic, but it's of a mythological genre, as we've seen in the last message. It does not refer necessarily to an actual act, like the actual act of the death of Jesus, or his burial, or his bodily resurrection. Instead, and this is very important Peter uses the genre of mythology to reveal the universally and diachronically saving significance of Jesus. When he died, he tasted death for everybody, including those who lived all their lives in the fear of death and who are now physically dead in the realm of the dead. But I believe they're in the realm of comfort awaiting the resurrection, just like you're awaiting resurrection now alive on this earth. They've heard the gospel, they know it, it reverberates in their realm too. Peter used the genre of that kind of symbolic language to reveal the universally and diachronically saving significance of Jesus. So Moltmann... Also grasped this very well and wrote about it in more than one place. In fact, I found it in God in creation He said quote the light of the resurrection is a light that fills even times past and the dead with hope for their coming redemption Or do you believe or do you have you not read that all will be made alive in Christ? That was me So, as we close today's little increment, by Peter saying that Jesus traveled by the Spirit, or was conveyed by the Spirit into the underworld to proclaim the gospel to the souls of the dead, Peter was proclaiming that Jesus' death, which he endured far from God and which he tasted for everyone, in Hebrews 2 9, was a saving death for all people, including those who had already lived their lives, subjected to the fear of death, and who died, and for all people of all epochs and all generations, despite their disobedience or lack of belief in the gospel all their lives. Despite the fact that we would not normally go to Hebrews, as we said before, to begin a study of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ, we cannot escape the reality in Hebrews of USSJC, U-I-C-C. We are learning by all of this of the depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To the end that we will be filled up with all the fullness of God and therefore come to completion. To come to completion, if God permits in Hebrews 6.1, is to be filled up with all the fullness of God and to have a redemptive impact on history. At any rate, 1 Peter 3.18-20 to 20, and 1 Peter 4.6 rightly understood In combination with Hebrews 2 15 are a commentary on the universal and diachronic redemptive impact of the cross of Christ without this vision of this all-saving Savior it's impossible not to neglect such a great salvation why are people so anxious to get back to church to praise a partial Savior that's not Jesus The Jesus I see is not that Jesus. He is an all-saving Savior. The other Jesus is another Jesus. He's the object of another gospel. And those who are receiving that other gospel, in which the majority of humanity are damned, are receiving not the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Another gospel is what they've received. You want to go to church. You want to go back to church. You want to go back. To church. To hear what? To see whom? Without this vision of Jesus and his universally saving significance, people will always be divided and divisive, fragmented and polarized into tribes and factions, and alienated from the life and the love of God through ignorance, and through following blind leaders in their idolatrous ideologies that lead to death and perishing in this life. Father, we thank you that Zophar's question to Job is well taken today. And that question is, Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? We may not be able to fathom the limits of who you are, God, but we do know that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. And we know that there are no limits to you, the Almighty, and the salvation that you have wrought in Christ. What can we do We are not sufficient in ourselves to even grasp these things. So grant us the grasp of it. And grant the grasp of these things to thousands through the message that was just proclaimed. Because our vision from 1978 on has to do with a little phrase in Jeremiah 32.19. And that is, or 32.18 make that, you show mercy to thousands.